people mistake calm for lack of it, it doesn't mean you don't have passion doesn't mean you don't feel strongly doesn't mean you don't have strong views it doesn't mean that you don't engage intensely in what you are doing it does mean that you try to be dispassionate that you try to divorce your emotional volatility from your intellectual process and i think that is critical calm intellectual approach analytic is infinitely more effective than a emotional response welcome to bulls bears and bourbon the investing show with a buzz sit back relax let's take the edge off grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy cheers from your host James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello again, everybody. James Vermillion here. Thanks for listening to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I am delighted to share an interview with a man I've known about for a long time and had the pleasure of meeting a few years ago at my sister's wedding, Mr. Steve Koch. Steve is a fascinating guy. He's worked in the private sector, the public sector, and done a lot of philanthropic work. He spent 27 years at Credit Suisse, and during that time, he held senior leadership roles in the mergers and acquisitions and investment banking departments. And during his career, he advised on landmark transactions across industries that together compromise more than $1 trillion worth of transactions. He joined the city of Chicago as the deputy mayor under Rahm Emanuel in 2012 and served in that role for five years. And there he played a role in rebuilding Chicago's finances and boosting the post-recession economy. He quarterbacked the city's pulling in of corporate headquarters and adding jobs and led to the city to spending billions to revitalize their infrastructure. During our conversation, Steve gives a primer on investment banking, talks about the role serendipity played in his life, talks about surviving the pressure-packed roles in investment banking and politics, and really just shares a lot of good information that can help all of us be better investors and better people. Enjoy. Steve, thanks so much for coming on Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I I appreciate it. I know you've got probably plenty of things you could be doing right now. It's a a little bit early in the day to to drink bourbon, but I'm still going to and uh, and uh, okay. excited excited to chat with you. I, I I sent you the bourbon. You got it. You're gonna abstain until a little bit later in the day when it's more appropriate bourbon drinking time, which is totally understandable. I'm gonna go ahead and give it a little uh, little uh, taste and let you know what you're getting into later. So we're going back on this episode to a brand I had on a previous episode with Adam Edelin. And we talked a lot about sustainable energy and what he's doing um, in Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and some of the coal states to transform um, some of those jobs into into new jobs and into sustainable energy jobs um, and kind of repurpose strip sites and things like that. This one uh, is similar. It's very old St. Nick once again, but this is the ancient barrel bourbon 12-year-old. And I talked a lot about how mysterious this bourbon is at one point. And it, it, there's a lot of mystery surrounding where it comes from. And, um, but it's interesting. So I'm going to give it a little, uh, little smell, a little taste, and let you know what I think. 
It's a hundred proof. And I've had this sitting, sitting out for about 15 minutes. It's definitely musty. It's got kind of a, a, a dust, kind of a musty smell, which I'm not really used to, which is kind of interesting. A lot of oak and then some hay, you know, some hay or, or, or some grass, very earthy, not a lot of sweetness to it. Um, not even really a lot of spice, just a lot of earthiness. I think that holds pretty true for the taste too, Steve. It's, it's grassy, very grassy. Mm. And you know, and the funny thin. thing is people like stuff that they, there's an air of mystery about it. And it's an interesting marketing ploy to sort of, you know, use that to their advantage. It is. It's, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's like an exclusivity kind of play, but also just this kind of like, I don't know, we, we've got to try it and see what it's all about. Um, absolutely. absolutely. I, the problem with that is sometimes you end up paying a lot of money for the mystery and not the bourbon. I will tell you these bourbons can be quite expensive and I uh, would probably say I would not be willing to pay uh, retail price for these bourbons, but they're good. Nonetheless, it's, it's also very, very thin. <laughs> you know how sometimes you drink a, you drink a bourbon and it's just got that like real thick oily kind of coating. This is the opposite. It's very thin. Yep. It's good though. It's good. It'll do. It'll do for a, Thursday at 2 p.m. So anyways, you, you know, we met at my sister's wedding a few years ago. I'd heard about you plenty of times from from my good friends, uh, the Liebmans. So I kind of knew a little bit about your background and had a chance to talk to you at my sister's wedding. But what I really like and why I thought you'd be interesting to chat with is you've got a pretty broad uh, group of experiences. Um, you've done some things in the public sector and the private sector and, you know, some philanthropy and, and a lot of things that I think are really interesting and probably provide some unique perspectives on, on the world, on investments and business and things like that. But I wanted to start with your time at Credit Suisse. Sure. I think investment banking has kind of become this like boogeyman of capitalism. People don't really know what investment bankers do. They don't really understand it. They've heard the term. Um, you know, that coming out of 2008, 2009, banking in, in general, you know, took the, the brunt of, of the blame for the financial crisis. So I just wanted to kind of clear up some of that for people who may not really know what investment banking is. If you could just kind of give like a very basic primer on what you did at, at Credit Suisse. Sure. Happy to do that. And I, uh, I will say in advance at the risk of being a little overly long-winded about it. So feel free to cut me off if I get too much detail. But investment banking is sort of a weird little bywater of the finance world. And really up until probably around 1980, nobody even knew what it was. It was really a very quiet, relatively private, mainly private companies uh, that were sort of out of the public eye. And that was the situation that existed really when the, the industry came into existence. Investment banking was created by the federal government in roughly 1930 as a result of the crash in 29. Banks, which at the time were what would be generally called a universal bank. So banks that existed at the time, let's say the Bank of Boston, one of the larger banks, or the Mellon Bank, one of the larger banks in the country at the time, had both a lending business where they made loans to businesses and individuals and a securities business where they traded, bought and sold, and most importantly, helped customers buy and sell stocks and bonds. 
as a result of the Securities Exchange Act, primarily as a result of the Depression in 1929. So in the early 30s, those two businesses were separated. And you had commercial banks come into existence and investment banks come into existence. Commercial banks, lots of people know them. You see them, they have a consumer arm. Investment banks are basically a wholesale business. So for many years, investment banks from really call it 1930 till the early 80s or late 80s were largely private partnerships that existed to buy and sell securities. They tended to hold them in their own inventory. So they, they had a big balance sheet and then they represented clients buying and selling securities. So stocks and bonds. That was really the situation up until call it sometime in the 80s. And the big business that they were known for was raising capital for companies. So if you were a company, particularly a public, publicly traded United States company, and you wanted to sell equity or sell bonds, you went to an investment bank. You went to Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or Lehman Brothers or the First Boston Corporation or somebody like that. You hired them as your underwriter. And they would go out to try to sell your securities and they were frequently at risk. So they would buy a hundred million dollars of a stock issue from IBM and then go resell it to people. And that was the core of the business. In the 1980s, that business evolved and two things happened. One, investment banks started to build up huge balance sheets and a big part of their business became the profits and losses they made from selling, buying, selling and inventorying securities. So that was a, became the profit driver. Of course, that also added enormous volatility to their balance sheet and to their income statement. Sometimes all of a sudden you started to have securities firms fail on a regular basis and it be provided a incentive to go public. So in the 1980s, all of a sudden a bunch of investment banks started becoming publicly traded entities, went from being private partnerships where the individual partner's money was at risk every day to being publicly held companies, which enormously changed the industry because all of a sudden there was lots of capital coming in. So the sales and trading business blew up, became enormous. The other part of that industry that really sort of came into being in the 1980s and really tracked my career because I started in 1980 was the merger and acquisition business, the business of advising companies on buying and selling other companies, which really didn't go on much up until the late 70s, early 80s. And then all of a sudden, it became a major part of the investment banking industry starting then. So I stumbled into this world. I didn't even really know what investment bank was. Otherwise, the, the truth is I'd been trained as a lawyer. I'd gone to law school and uh, was working one summer job at a big law firm in New York. And I really thought I would kill myself if I had to do this for a living. It was just excruciatingly <laughs> painful and dull and hard. And uh, I was working on a bond offering and there was this guy at the, at the closing who was, you know, really well-dressed and seemed very relaxed and very happy and sort of seemed like he had a much more interesting life than anybody I saw around me. So I asked somebody, what did he do? And he was the investment banker. So I figured, okay, that's what I ought to do. And the following summer, my last year of graduate school, I got a job at Lehman Brothers at the time was Lehman Brothers Kuhn Loeb, still a private partnership and based in this beautiful building on Wall Street. And it just was a fascinating world. So I decided that's what I was going to go do with myself. And I uh, entered the industry just as mergers and acquisitions was becoming a big thing. That really appealed to me for a lot of different reasons. And that's where I focused my career. And 
oddly enough, about every year or so, I figure, okay, I got to figure out what I'm really going to do with my life and go get a real job. And 27 years later, after spending around 20 of those years running the merger and acquisition business at uh, what was then the first Boston Corporation, which became Credit Suisse, or first became Credit Suisse for Boston, then became Credit Suisse. And I spent 20 years running the merger and acquisition business there and finally fired myself. That's fascinating, especially kind of being there for this you know, dramatic shift and how investment banking was kind of operated and what role it played in the economy. You came in early, um, kind of in that transition. What do you think was the biggest change from the time you were there and either to the time you got out or even till t- to today? I mean, what's changed the most since then? Well, it, it is clearly the the introduction of massive quantities of capital, of money into the industry. When I started in 1980, uh, Lehman Brothers, which was one of the largest investment banks at the time, I think had less than $100 million of total capital of, of equity behind its balance sheet. That's rounding air today. It's, it's barely right. registered. They now have balance sheets that are measured in the billions and even trillions of dollars. Um, you know, equity of many, many billions and debt behind that of even multiples of that. So the advent of that amount of capital means you have to use it. You know, capital unused is a, is a wasting asset, is, is a detriment. So as you raise capital and you have all this money, you have to use it. You have to build up a big balance sheet. You have to build up a big sales and trading business. That drives volume, that drives activity. It led to the creation of all kinds of financial instruments that never existed when I started. It led to the creation of asset-backed securities, which, of course, was famously, arguably, the major bad actor responsible, the, 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 the instruments that were largely responsible for the crash in uh, 08 and 09 or 07 to 09. Um, so the industry just, and it went from being small private partnerships where the senior partner's capital was at risk every day to being large public entities where you had paid management that were using the capital of public shareholders and, and it just causes different behavior. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm curious, being in that business and, and just on Wall Street, really, no matter what kind of role you were you were playing, you obviously through through the 80s, I mean, you saw the you know Black Monday in 87, you saw the, you know, the, the tech boom, you lived through, you know, 9-11 um, that, that shook the markets. And I'm sure you could rattle off, uh, you know, 20 yeah. other um, Russian events. bond debacle. Yeah. I mean, I lived through probably four major crashes in my 30 year career. And I think that's important for my audience who, you know, it's mostly investors who are trying to build wealth. Um, some are further along than others, but everyone's kind of got this similar objectives. What lessons can you take from that? Because obviously that's super stressful, I'm sure. Um, and you're already in a pressure cooker, I think, in the investment banking world from, from the people I've talked to. So what lessons would you tell somebody who's just trying to use the market as a way to build wealth and meet their kind of long-term objectives? Well, I think I'd tell them two things. I think both incredibly important things to keep in mind. Number one, um, <laughs> to put it in a very blunt way, at some point, the world will go to shit. <laughs> it will happen. You know, there's always a moment, and it's usually right before the world goes to shit, 
that you think, oh my God, I can't figure out what could go wrong. Everything's great. <laughs> right. Uh, that is the worry moment where you should be the most worried and the most defensive. And it doesn't mean that you don't invest long-term. It doesn't mean that you don't think about uh, taking risk. What it does mean is you take risk judiciously. You protect your downside. You think about what the world will be if it does go to shit. And when I say go to shit, it means obviously, you know, the bubble bursts. We are Let's take the moment right where we are today, late July 2021, you know, financial markets roaring, uh, a company like Robinhood goes public, um, you know, the tech stocks are worth hundreds of billions into the trillions of dollars in terms of value, you know, many multiples of what they were just as recently as a couple of years ago. Okay, so what does that mean? It means market is very optimistic. People, as a general matter, the market reflects, you know, the psyche of millions of people because that's what a market is. And it is largely optimistic about the future because stocks are trading at high multiples of current whatever metric cash flow mm -hmm. earnings. So that tells you people are greatly optimistic. That's the time at which I personally tend to start thinking about okay, what is the downside here? What's going to happen? And wh in what way can the world go to crap? And what does it mean for financial markets? And I think, you know, I once read a quote from Warren Buffett, who we come back to an interesting man, but had has some great wisdom. And uh, he said something about, if I remember correctly, I'll paraphrase, you know, not losing money is probably more important than making money. And so you got to think about as you invest and you think about finance, I think it's incredibly important, absolutely central to think as much about losing money as much as making money and how you protect not to not lose money as much as you think about how to actually make money. Both of those things are very, very, very important. The second element, I would say I, I was sort of blessed with a naturally low pulse rate. <laughs> um, but I tend to, I, I think I've spent most of my career in relatively high pressure, uh, very volatile environments. And I always saw value in being the calmest person in the room. There is value in being um, counter to the volatility of the environment you're in, which is not something, it, it's not something that comes naturally. It's a learned behavior. It's a learned skill. It's a learned mode of being. And I spend a fair amount of psychic energy thinking about that and trying to be that way. I don't always succeed. Trust me, I don't. And many people around me will, around me would say, yeah, it's an interesting ambition, but <laughs> certainly what it's certainly what I try. And uh, it's very effective if you succeed at it, because there is just great value in being the calm person when everybody else is. Well, I'm fascinated by that in particular, because I will openly admit and everyone around me would, would uh, confirm that I'm definitely not the calmest person in the room. Not, not in the sense of always panicking, but I'm very excitable. And mm -hmm. going back to what you said about it being a learned behavior, that's something I have actively been working on for several years um, is keeping a calmer demeanor, not getting overly excited one way or the other. Um, right. and, and trying to think more clearly, no matter what the situation is. So I think that's very wise. And I think that is a very important trait. If you're going to 
manage your own money or like me, I'm managing other people's money. So it's even more so important that I'm able to look at things through a, through a clear lens and not get caught up in the excitement and the noise and make sound decisions for my clients. So I think I that's definitely good more. feedback. I, I think it's incredibly important. I add two things about that. One, that people mistake uh, calm for lack of, it doesn't mean you don't have passion. doesn't mean you don't feel strongly. doesn't mean you don't have strong views. It doesn't mean that you don't uh, engage intensely in what you are doing. It does mean that you try to be dispassionate, that you try to divorce your emotional volatility from your intellectual process. And I think that is critical. Calm, intellectual approach, analytic is infinitely more effective than a emotional response. And then the second thing I'd say is um, you can use that calm to your advantage. Mm-hmm. And people do. It's not, it's not like I, I, I don't, I do value and I know people who swear by things like meditation, all that sort of thing. Not so much just, it's about controlling and separating your intellectual process from your emotional process. You can be as emotional a person as you want to be. You just have to learn to keep that out of your analytic decision-making. And uh, I think there's just real value to understanding how those things interact, understanding how they affect your own thinking and making sure you do the best you can to um, just be that island of calm in a sea of volatility. I think a lot of it comes back to self-awareness too, and knowing what your personal, I don't want to say flaws, but tendencies are. And absolutely. And just just being aware of those is going to make you so much better at, at controlling them. There's no question. If, if I, you know, in in a, if I'm giving somebody a performance room, Mm self-awareness is a critically valuable trait. Hard to be anything good if you're unself-aware. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you said something earlier and it reminded me of, you look at talking heads on television, whether it's sports or market analysts or whoever, they're just generating noise. They're just talking very loudly and they've got oftentimes outrageous opinions. One thing I've often said is, you know, volume does not necessarily correlate with conviction. Just because someone's not yelling doesn't mean they don't have high conviction. And just because someone is yelling doesn't necessarily mean they actually have conviction in what they're saying. Correct. Or know anything about what they're saying. Or that. Absolutely that. I want to shift gears a little bit. I mentioned earlier, kind of in the quick intro, that you uh, worked in both the public and the private sectors. So we talked a little bit about um, uh, the the second there um, with, with Credit Suisse. But you had an interesting career change and, and, you, and you got into politics a little bit. You were the deputy mayor of Chicago, and I'm sure that was and maybe equally or maybe more uh, pressure packed environment. But I'm sure a lot of those lessons from Credit Suisse served you very well. Um, can you talk a little bit what made you leave what I assume was probably a very familiar job where you were um, comfortable, probably high performing and decide to take that position when offered by Rahm Emanuel's team? Sure. Um, well, I, I'd say the following. I, I have always had a philosophy that no one should stay in a job more than five years. You get stale. 
it's next to impossible. It's superhuman to be able to do a job at full effectiveness for, say, 10 years. I, I just think that's incredibly unusual. I know very few people who have. Um, I was in a, roughly the same job for 20 years. So for a bunch of them, I was consciously pushing myself to um, remain as effective as I think you need to be when you're at a sort of high-end job in anything. Um, so I had been thinking for a while about, I wanted to do something else. I, you know, it certainly had, it was not as challenging, uh, but you, but people get very comfortable. I mean, it is, mm -hmm. it is a real human phenomenon. I was certainly enormously comfortable, managed my life. Well, got paid way more money than I was possibly worth, <laughs> had much more fun than anybody should rightly have. And it was great. Uh, that said, I was, you know, aware that I'd been doing it a long time and, on some level by my still being around was blocking younger people who were coming up and I valued and I mentored and taught and, you know, really wanted to see them succeed. So I, I knew I wanted to get out of the way and uh, had thought about a couple of different things uh, sort of out of the blue. Um, I get a phone call from Ron Emanuel about a week before he actually got elected mayor of Chicago. He said, come see me. I go over there and, you know, after about 15 seconds of pleasantries, he says, I want you to quit your job and come be deputy mayor of Chicago, to which I said, absolutely not. You're out of your mind. Uh, so we argued for a while, argued at some volume, actually. But uh, I said, no, he he sort of bugged me off and on for about a year. And eventually I just said, well, what the hell? He keeps being persistent. And it actually sounds like it would be interesting. So I did. And I spent five uh, of some of the more fulfilling years professionally I've ever had. I mean, just really wonderfully uh, fascinating, engaging, impactful, and satisfying years uh, in public service. Couldn't have enjoyed it more. Couldn't have thought it was a better use of my time. Um, I was incredibly lucky. I, I, I'd say two things. One, there's an enormous value to doing public service at a point in your career when you don't owe anybody anything. And you're not trying to prove anything. You just want to do a good job. Right. So you're much, much more independent, much less beholden, much able to, you know, one of the great values is to be effective in public life. You have to be able to say no, and you have to be able to walk away. If you don't believe in something, you have to be able to just literally every day walk in and say, if somebody asks me to do something I don't want to do, or I think is wrong, you're going to leave. And uh, you can do that very easily at the end of your career. You can't do it <laughs> at the beginning. That's a good point. So I was super lucky as to when the opportunity came along. And secondly, I was incredibly lucky that I had an opportunity to do something like that in a place I cared deeply about, where it was very personal, where I knew the environment intimately. I wasn't like all of a sudden being transplanted and being, you know, ambassador to Timbuktu or deputy assistant secretary of this, that, and the other thing. I was in a place I'd spent my life and I really uh, was able to sort of deeply embraced the mission of making Chicago a better place. And uh, so it was just a fascinating, really wonderful uh, experience. All right. I've got a question for you, sir. What is more cutthroat investment banking or Chicago politics? Well, I, I don't know if you know the, the uh, famous Henry Kissinger's quote about academics where, uh, he to paraphrase he, him, he said, you know, the politics are the most vicious in the world because the stakes are so low. Um, I'd say, honestly, they're different. 
they're very different worlds. Finance is all about money. I mean, that really is what it is. And it's how people measure themselves. It's how people keep score. Some people really want to accumulate a lot of money, but a lot of it is just a game of winning. Mm-hmm. And, and the score keeping is money. Uh, politics, it's about power. It's about impact. It's about influence. It's about notoriety. It could be a lot of things. Money is a factor, but but relatively minor one. People are not, obviously, you don't go into politics if you're motivated by money. So it's it's a different set of metrics that people compete about. Uh, as in any human endeavor where there's a real prize, people compete like cats and, you know, they really, they really go at it. Uh-huh. And that's the same in both environments. Um, no different. It's what they're competing about that is different. Did you find it more fulfilling? Do you think having gone from investment banking and being in that just strict finance money world? Do you think that would have been more fulfilling going that way instead of just going directly into politics where you had, you had experienced something different and and that gave you some kind of a different um, goal and objective than you were used to? Yeah, I I think so. A, you know, the beauty of public life is it's very clear what your mission is. It's very absolute clarity of why you're doing it. You're trying to make the world better. Um, unambiguous. So you have a a mission you wake up to in the morning. That's very satisfying. You know, I spent 30 years doing it and certainly enjoyed it enormously. And it made my life possible, but you know, waking up in the morning to make more money or try to motivate, I had, you know, hundreds of people who work for me and try to motivate people as to how to do their best when it's really about money is actually not, it's harder than when there's a bigger mission. So the mission's different. Um, I'd say I was very fortunate in that I had a life experience before I came to public life, which was enormously informative, but, you know, probably most importantly, I had freedom. I was not beholden to anybody. I had financial freedom. I had sort of life freedom. So I, it it just, it's enormously beneficial to have that level of freedom when you're working in the public sector. You mentioned, I read um, one time where you, you were talking about your career, both in finance and in uh, public service. And you, you said that serendipity was a major factor in yeah. how you ended up in both places. And I, I think there's some humility there, which, which I can respect. Um, I think at the time, you almost made it sound like you kind of stumbled into, into these opportunities, which is, is true, I'm sure, to some degree. But obviously... Uh, to reach the the area, you know, to reach the pinnacle um, of investment banking at Credit Suisse, to be kind of the guy, and then to be handpicked out of nowhere—you didn't have a pre-existing relationship, um, or at least much of one that I'm that I knew of with Rahm Emanuel. I mean, obviously, you, there are some qualities that you displayed and things you did throughout your life to kind of put you in those positions. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. What what do you think it is? I mean, why do you think? Rahm Emanuel approached you. I mean, I know you're both avid bike riders. Maybe you wanted a, a riding partner. Uh, you know, um, the the actual story of why Rahm Emanuel, I, I didn't know him from Adam before he approached me. I, I met him once, shaking his hand a couple of times at, you know, functions, but we didn't know each other. Uh, oddly, it is a little bit of an accident. He 
he got some advice from a uh, major public U.S. figure. Uh, well, I'll, I'll alter the story a bit. Um, <laughs> but he got some advice right before he got elected. He talked to somebody about, you know, what should he do to succeed? And the guy said, uh, who had been in a similar spot, said, what you really need is a deputy mayor who can handle the things you're going to pay less attention to. And um, as a result, he sort of sought me out thinking he knew I'd, you know, was sort of known in, in a certain circle that I was thinking about what else to do and was interested in the public sphere. And uh, so he sought me out because of that. I, I, I do. Yes, you're right. It's sort of a, you know, I, I veer, I tend towards uh, understatement, but it is in fact the truth that I think serendipity plays a extraordinary role in most people's lives. You know, I spent, doesn't mean I didn't spend a lot of time in the course of my life thinking about what am I going to do next and what should I try to do and where I'm going and all that sort of thing. Or for that matter, if, you know, people come to you for advice, they don't want to hear, well, you know, it'll just happen and don't worry about it because that's just not, not, not realistic, particularly for high achieving or ambitious people. But as I reflect on it, it is in fact un, unarguably true that some amount of life is the accident of things that happen that you put yourself in a position to take advantage of. Absolutely. You have to do the things to be sort of at the table or eligible or, or in the room when somebody's looking around for somebody who can do this. But uh, their serendipity, luck, accident plays an enormous role. Just does. It, it, it is, in fact, an accident that Rahm Emanuel happened to talk to somebody who happened to have had this experience and happened to know somebody who knew me who recommended me to do this. And so you got to respect how much of, of life is planned and how much of life is something you work incredibly hard or you got to work hard to put yourself in a position to take advantage of. And then it takes a certain amount of serendipity. And I think anybody who ignores that as being overly uh, self-involved and overly impressed with himself because luck plays an enormous role. And uh, you just got to respect that. I agree. I get very nervous anytime someone talks about themselves and anyone who's been very successful and doesn't attribute anything to just being at the right place, the right time or or those serendipitous moments where they were, you know, just on the receiving end of, of good fortune or meeting the right, right. person. So right. I, I think that couldn't be, be any more true. And I want to talk a little bit, I started this podcast really more for myself than, than anything. I mean, I hope everyone who listened, learned something from it, but it gives me an opportunity to talk to people who might be a little bit harder for, for me to just reach, you know, just to call them up and ask for advice. Although I probably could have done that too, but you know, I love learning from people who have, um, had success, whether that's financial success or, or just success in other areas of their life. But one thing that's important to me, it's not just about the money part investing. Mm-hmm. I'm very passionate about, um, I love helping my clients, you know, do better financially and, and make money in the markets. And I, I love doing it myself, but I, my dad always taught me, you know, about balance. You know, you have to, you have to find balance in life. You can't get hyper-focused 
in one area and neglect your family or you can't, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't totally be a a family person and and probably at this day and age and, and be able to, you know, have the things you need to provide. You've got to find that balance and maintain mental health and all of these things. How did you do that? Because I, I hear stories, um, you know, coming out of Goldman Sachs with, with some people I know who are in that space. And I mean, it just sounds daunting. And I think of myself and I don't know if I could even survive um, being in that space, especially as a young, young person. It, it to is come daunting. Up. It is daunting. And you have to be uh, self-aware. You have to have your head screwed on straight and understand what's important to you. I was unusually lucky to go return to the theme of luck. Or I, I wouldn't say, well, so uh, in graduate school, I met a woman from Kentucky. Yes. Always a good thing. Yes. Very smart man. Hard to argue with that. We wound up getting married. And uh, one of the consequences of marrying a woman from Kentucky was that she made it very clear long before we were even that serious that she wasn't going to spend her life living in New York. (laughs) And I might have, you know, ambition and I might have the desire to engage in that world, but she didn't. And we were going to find a way to do it otherwise. So I was, in some respects, enormously lucky that, you know, we wound up living in Chicago and I commuted for most of my career. I worked in New York or London and lived in Chicago. And the consequence of that was when I was there, I worked my butt off. When I wasn't there, that world was far away. And I wasn't caught up in the sort of craziness of, you know, the self-absorbed, intense, everything else falls mm-hmm. away to the wayside kind of Wall Street life. Um, just by virtue of the fact that my uh, late wife, my Kentucky born wife said, that ain't what, that's not what she signed up for. <laughs> and, uh, as a result, you know, I like to think I, I was enormously benefited by the fact that, you know, just, I didn't live in that environment. So I was able to, uh, my own inclination aside, I just wasn't in that world where work was everything and nothing else mattered. And it's this intense, intense inward focus on success. Um, I can relate. And I got married at 22 um, because I was getting ready to go into the Air Force. I just graduated University of Kentucky. I was getting ready to go into the Air Force. And when I look back on how those things played out, I'm very fortunate, I think, because you're right. When you are married and you have someone else that it, you know is important to you, it, it does change your focus. And I try to think back on what stupid things I would have done and not taking care of myself and, you know, decisions I might've made that wouldn't have been as um, healthy in, in any regard, whether it's physical health, mental health, financial health. And I'm, I feel very fortunate and uh, owe a debt of gratitude to my wife, Kate, for sure. Because uh, like I said, I don't know where, where that would have ended up. So the moral of the story, I think is find you a good Kentucky girl and uh, lock her down. Well, it certainly, it, it will never take you. Well, I shouldn't say it'll never take you wrong. In my case, in your case, it was uh, pretty central to a lot of things in my life. But I, you know, I, I, kidding aside, I think whether it be a partner, whether it be your own sort of moral compass, whether it be your own, you know, you need to, to care about what you care about. You need to know what you care about. And then you need to care about those things. And I think it is all too easy in life to get, to lose sight of what is important to you. And I don't, 
mean to denigrate. I mean, there's nothing wrong with somebody. If somebody decides their purpose in life is to work the butt off all the time, 100%. Okay, so be it. Uh, just recognize what you're giving up. Recognize that that means other things are not going to happen. And don't do a half-assed job of them. You know, do what you care about and do a great job on that. And I was lucky in that it sort of suited my own psychic needs. It was it, it was consistent with what my partner in life wanted to do. And, and we were able to make a life that um, did not get quite as caught up in the, in the lunacy of, of Wall Street as it otherwise might have. I think sometimes giving advice like that or talking about things like that, it's, you almost feel like you're being like overly virtuous or like, it's kind of a weird thing, but I think it's so true, Steve, like, honestly, like more people need to kind of talk about those things. Um, because I, I I think it's so true people, it's especially easy now. And I'm sure it's always been difficult and it's just changed, but it's so easy to just get caught up in bullshit and in stuff that is really meaningless. You know, when you look, when you're old or whatever, or you're, you're on your deathbed or whatever, you look back, you don't want to have spent the bulk of your life doing totally meaningless nonsense um, so that you could get some short-term um, boost of, of adrenaline or, uh, or anything like that. So I, I think that's no, really I, important. I, I was always really lucky in that I, at various points, had people around me who were mentors or friends or or people who gave me advice who, who emphasized the importance of that, of, of self-knowledge, of knowing what's important to you, of understanding what has long-term value and what, what it means to leave a lasting impact as opposed to short-term or transitory gain. Mm-hmm. And uh, not, not through any great virtue, it just, you know, I, I, I think this was, again, a, a matter of luck of who's in your life and, and what cues you take and what lessons you learn and sort of how that fits with your own ability to absorb that and respond to those kind of cues. And uh, it worked out. No, I love it. Well, before we switch to kind of my couple closing questions, I want to ask about your biking. I know when I first reached yeah. out to you, you were biking around like Michigan, I guess. And then I know right. years ago you, you biked the length of the Mississippi river. So to yeah, talk about yeah. biking, how you got into that. Fact, some years before that, I, with your friend, Joe, we, I biked, my son and I biked across the United States from California to Florida. Wow. And, uh, Joe, Joe drove the support vehicle for that trip. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we spent about two months doing that. Well, you know, it's sort of a weird story. I was um, walking back from a lunch with a friend. This is now going back, oh, uh, probably 17, 18 years ago. I had never been a big biker. I I, I was not, through most of my life, not all that into exercise. I was as a kid, and then I sort of started again maybe when I was 45 or so. But anyways, walking back from a lunch and we're chatting, told me he had just gone to bike mechanic school, which was the most improbable thing I could imagine for this particular <laughs> guy. I don't think his fingernails had ever been dirty in his whole damn life. And I said, what the hell do you do that for? He said, well, I have this idea. I'm going to ride my bicycle across the country. And it was one of those moments in life where literally I sort of felt a click in my brain. I, I, I can't describe it any other way. It was like all of a sudden my world shifted. And I thought, well, A, you're never going to do that about this guy, which he never did. And B, I thought, I'm going to do that. And I, <laughs> I knew at that moment, I want to do that 
five years from that moment, which it was, um, my late wife at the time was ill. And uh, I just thought, I, I, I need a goal. Wound up dying shortly thereafter that. Uh, I knew that at that moment, five years later, my last youngest kid would be graduating from high school. I would either be an empty nester or whatever. But anyways, I just thought, I'm going to do that. And uh, I started telling people. And most people actually say, well, you're never doing that. You're out of your mind. And of course, if you tell people something, you ultimately yes. wind up more likely to do it because otherwise it's too embarrassing to back out. And uh, I wound up doing that. It was one of the best experiences I think I'd ever done. Just a wonderful, for many reasons, you know, if nothing else. The truth is, if you exercise five or six hours a day, you're going to be in a good mood because you right. just can't help it. You got, right. you know, it's literally hormonal. The endorphins are coursing through your body. Well, when you ride a bike on a long distance trip, you're exercising above beyond everything else. You are just literally exercising for five hours a day, six hours a day, and you're going to feel great. And I felt phenomenal for two months. So I started doing it. And uh, pretty much every year or two since then, I've taken a long trip. As you mentioned, I just a couple of weeks ago finished about a thousand miles riding around Lake Michigan. And it's just a wonderful, very meditative experience. It's very, you know, it's obviously physically good for you. It's a fun way to spend time with people. Mm -hmm. I tend to do these with groups of people that come along. You know, it's just a wonderful, fun, restorative experience. I love it. And I love your point about, you know, setting a goal with a specific time frame and telling people about it. And I'm guilty of yeah. this all the time because it makes a difference. In fact, I think people think I'm crazy sometimes, but but the goal I've been talking about lately is, and my wife might kill me for saying this on the podcast here, but we would like to spend a year living in Europe in 2023 with our daughter. So that's what go. we're that's what we're shooting for. And so, well, get a villa in Tuscany, and I'll come visit you. We're 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 looking at the Ticino region of Switzerland, just just oh, north nice. uh, west of Milan. So. Um, nice. we'll see that's, that's preliminary, but, but, um, but I love that. I love the idea of kind of putting yourself on the spot and giving yourself some extra motivation by kind of it publicly telling it, people your goals. It is motivating. Absolutely. is. It is. Well, let's, let's switch to the kind of the last couple of questions. I want to be respectful of your time. What does wealth mean to you, Steve? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think Look, wealth is a very abstract concept. And I think being wealthy is irrelevant. What wealth is, is, is an opportunity. It can be an opportunity for security. So wealth, I think in the first instance, should mean or, or, or be valued because it can provide security. And in the second instance, it can provide freedom. And those are, I think, the two relevant things. I think beyond that, who gives a damn? But security and freedom are inherently both very valuable. And if money can do that, that's great. Not going to bring happiness, not going to bring joy, it's not going to bring sadness, but it, it can bring security. And I think in setting financial goals, it's really important to, again, visualize importance, understand what, what your goal is. And if your goal is security, then that's one kind of number. If your goal is freedom, that's a whole other number. Uh, so I, I, I think that's how I think about it. 
No, that ranks, you know, I, I ask that question to every guest and, and those two things come up quite a bit. And I also tried to dig into some historical figures and what they had to say. And Thoreau said, wealth is the ability to fully experience life. And I think that's a pretty profound way of, of putting it. So, and then final question before I let you go, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, maybe fresh out of college and give yourself some advice on investing or business, um, what do you think you would tell yourself? Oh, I'll tell you, I, I, there's a lot of things. God, that's, that's a subject for a whole other hour. <laughs> from a, from, since you're, this is about investing, I'll say one thing uh, or one idea. Two or three times in my life, I have stumbled across a company or a product that I thought was really exceptional. And, you know, the, the idea sort of struck me like, oh, how to go buy this stock. And of course, I never did because I, I didn't. I don't, I'm not a big buyer of individual stocks. I know for most of my career, I couldn't because I was right. heavily watched by the SEC. So I just didn't, but two or three times, like, and so by example, you know, 40 years ago, I was walking on a little street in Vermont and ate Ben and Jerry's ice cream for the first time. And it blew my freaking mind. It was <laughs> the best goddamn ice cream I'd ever had. In my life. <laughs> and about a year or two later, the company went public. And I thought, shit, I ought to buy some Ben and Jerry stock. Mm -hmm. Of course, I didn't. And of course, it you know did incredibly well, and I never bought it. Uh, four or five years ago, I drove a Tesla for the first time. I mm -hmm. thought, this is the best damn car I've ever driven in my life. It was an incredible car, just a phenomenal car. And I looked a little bit at the company and said, oh, God, this guy's goofy, and the company's crazy, and they're never going to make money. I'm never going to buy I'm not going to buy that stock. Of course, stock has done unbelievably well. So. You know, there is a certain value to thinking about what you as a consumer of something you care about. If you, if you know, I know a lot about cars. I like, I know a lot about food. Those were two instances in which my personal knowledge could have been really used to enormous financial advantage, which of course I didn't because I'm lazy. And I, whatever. <laughs> but uh, if I thought further, if I, if I went back in time, I I'd do a few of those things. Yeah, and uh, and life wouldn't be any different, but it'd be at least I wouldn't have to tell that story. Well, I, I think that's great, and, and I appreciate you sharing it. And I think it goes to say that I think people do oftentimes undervalue their own thoughts in their own absolutely. Their, absolutely. You know, so. In that instance, absolutely, and 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 overcomplicate things. You know, I, yeah. I mean, look at Will Danoff of the Contra Fund. I mean, he talks so much about how he stopped doing these complex financial models because he said they're not right. worth a damn. They don't mean anything. Right. You know, um, so anyways, uh, good true. stuff, Steve. I really appreciate it. It was good to talk to you again and um, appreciate your time. My pleasure. Look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thanks again for listening. I'll be seeing Steve again in about a month at my good friends, Joe and Adrian's wedding. I'm hoping to share a bourbon with him in person and pick his brain a little bit more. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Remember, the best way to help grow the show is to share it with anyone you know who might enjoy it. And don't forget to subscribe or follow so you're notified when new episodes are dropped. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>